So let me start us off with a word of prayer. Let us pray. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this night. We thank you for this book and the opportunity to be able to study it together. Lord, we thank you for having inspired C.S. Lewis to give these talks and to write this book. Lord, we pray that this book would be a gateway into the truth of your holy word and how you call for your people to live. Lord, we pray that you would bless our time tonight with your presence, that you would strengthen us to love you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, we are going to start, as always, with our scripture verse from 2 Peter. Uh, again, I commend this one to you if you want something to memorize for Lent. Uh, this is a great one to do. So let's say this together. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And there's so many things about this that are great, but I just have been thinking today about that word partakers. Being a partaker means that you are entitled to a part of something. And it is amazing to think that we become partakers of the divine nature. And this is what Lewis was talking about uh, in the recent chapters where he talked about the Christ life within us. And that is something that is an amazing uh, and beautiful privilege of being a Christian. So I wanted to say a word of welcome to anyone who's new. We continue to get new folks every week, uh, which is great. And uh, I could probably have those of you in the class do a chorus about how uh, this next part goes. But if you're joining us and you're new, I just want to welcome you and say you are welcome to be here on your own terms, which is what we call being on the beach. Uh, you don't really read anything. You probably don't even read the book uh, that we're studying. But that's okay. We are delighted to have you at whatever level you would like to be here. You can snorkel, which means you go deep on those parts that you find more interesting or intriguing, or you can scuba dive. Uh, where you go down the rabbit hole with me when I find something that as my nerd side comes out, um, I just can't resist sharing with you. Um, there's going to be a great article for scuba divers um, that will come in the email next week. Um, and if you are new, speaking of the email, please do Google St. Philip's Church Charleston, and we will uh, add you to our email list if you will send me an email. And that will get you the summary and some links to articles and other resources. So I wanna just also say a word for anyone who's new and getting ready to try to start reading Mere Christianity, especially since we're on book three right now and you might be tempted to read all of it at once. Please don't do that. Uh, I had coffee with yet another person um, this week who was a newcomer to St. Philip's who was talking about Mere Christianity. And she was saying that the first time she read it, she just felt like she ought to read it because so many Christians told her it was so great. And she tried reading it and she got about halfway through and just threw it in the trash can because she was so frustrated. She didn't like it at all. And that is not unlike my own first experience with this book, uh, which is funny to think about since I love it so much now. But this book, since it was originally given as broadcast talks, each chapter is a unit that's design, designed to be thought about and chewed on before you go to the next one. So I encourage you, if you're reading the book, to read it out loud, read it one chapter at a time. The pace that we're doing the class is one chapter a week, uh, but if you're trying to catch up, if you're behind, uh, maybe a chapter every other day or something like that wouldn't be too bad. I also wanna commend to you the C.S. Lewis Doodle on YouTube, that's a great resource um, to reinforce and um, just see some creative takes on uh, Lewis's work. So as always, we have a musical selection 
Um, I know sometimes they're a little hard to hear depending on your equipment. Um, if you don't get to hear it and you want to listen to it, it's always in the email that comes out. So this one, some of y'all might know what this is. It's a little obscure. Uh, it is from the Middle Ages. Uh, those of you that listen to music from the Middle Ages every day, uh, if there is anyone like that, you might know what this is. So we'll listen for a little bit and see if we get any takers. If you think you know, you can uh, send me a chat. Okay, so Elizabeth Scott has got the right answer. Uh, if you are somebody who grew up on the 1940 hymnal uh, in the Episcopal or Anglican tradition, uh, it's humbly I adore thee in that tradition. Um, it is particularly appropriate for tonight uh, because the, the version that we're listening to is called Adorote and it is actually um, a hymn that was written by Thomas Aquinas in the Middle Ages. And it's part of a suite of five great Eucharistic hymns, a number of which show up in our um, hymnal in the Episcopal Church and the Church of England and in the Anglican Church. And they are beautiful. They are sung um, to that plain song chant that is so beautiful and haunting. And I will uh, send the recording link of that out. And I really commend that to you. If you're having a stressful day, uh, sitting down somewhere and turning that up loud and closing your eyes is uh, much better than Xanax or anything like that. So uh, I would commend that to you. So uh, let's uh, go on with our review of context. We're in 1942. At this particular point in mere Christianity, England is still very much at war. It is still uh, really terrible in World War II. The US is in the war, but the war is going big time in Asia as well. And in England, the Baedeker bombing that we talked about is going on where the Germans are targeting major cultural sites, spiritual sites, parts of the national heritage. People are very demoralized. Lewis is coming in on the train still to the BBC um, through the flames uh, and climbing over the sandbags. The BBC is still being bombed in World War II during this time period. So uh, we're gonna run quickly through the first part of this uh, as context as those of you who were at St. Philip's Church tonight know, um, mere Christianity is a little bit like Paul's epistle to the Romans. It's built as an argument and that's why we review every week, because you have to have the foundation that's underlying. So the first book Lewis starts with is Right and Wrong is a clue to the meaning of the universe. He said, it doesn't matter how much you talk about the good news of Christianity. If people don't believe in God, they don't believe in sin. And you have to start with what they can observe. And so he did that, starting with this whole idea of who are we and how did we and the cosmos come into being? And then that strange fact that humans have an idea of how they should behave, but they don't do it. And when we fail to do it, we come up, as Lewis said, with a list of excuses as long as your arm. Book one, uh, at the end of that, there was a great letter from Jimmy Welch to Lewis uh, from the BBC about how important it is for the church in times of uncertainty and questioning to expound the Christian faith in terms that can be easily understood by ordinary men and women and how to apply the faith to present day society. That is so true for us today. 
And we have this problem in the church where we are afflicted by pride, like the Pharisees were, and we need to learn gospel self-forgetfulness. And remember that story, beauty, and transcendence, which we have in the Christian faith, are things that our culture hungers for. And we need to become translators of that spiritual truth. So in book two, Lewis talks about what Christians believe. And in just five chapters, he sums up the whole Christian faith. And he talks about the idea that if, if there were no God, how would we ever have an idea of just or unjust? The standard has to come from somewhere. And he says that we are in this world in enemy occupied territory. And the Christianity is the story of how the rightful king is landed in disguise and is calling us to all take part in a campaign of sabotage. And that the most important part of that is going to church because there you're listening in when you hear the word of God preached on what the strategy is. And that's why Satan will do everything in his power to keep you from going to church. Lewis then talks about free will, that God created free will, which makes evil possible, but it's also the only thing that makes possible love or goodness or joy. He talks about the quest for happiness. And that, of course, is very relevant today. Uh, when the college freshmen going in each year are surveyed, their top goal in life is to be happy. And Lewis, of course, says, God made us. He invented us as a man invents a machine and we're designed to run on himself. He's the fuel we're designed to burn. God can't give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it's not there. There is no such thing. Then he talks about how shocking Jesus was, that he claimed to be the one who had made the world. He claimed to forgive sins, the most shocking words ever uttered by a human being. And then we get Lewis's trilemma where he says a man who was a merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can yell at him, spit at him, and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. And Lewis talks then next about how, although Jesus says he's come to preach and to teach, that it becomes very clear when you read the Gospels that the bulk of the time of the Gospels is given over to Christ's suffering and death. And the reason for that is that Christians believe Christ's death, his shed blood, has put us right with God and given us a fresh start. This is what Christians call the atonement. And he then goes on to talk about that Christ life. He says, this is not just trying to be good. Some people think Christianity is just trying to be good and that if you're good enough, God lets you into heaven. But the, that is not the gospel at all. Christians think that any good that we do comes from the Christ life that dwells in us through the Holy Spirit, much more than our trying to follow Jesus's teaching. In Christ, a new kind of man appeared, and that new kind of life which began in him is to be put into us. And then Lewis talks about how Jesus commanded that we, when we come to faith in him, we be baptized, we have belief, that is a belief that we trust our lives to him, and that as Christians together, we participate in the Lord's Supper. So one of the things about book two is it's a beautiful illustration of that great truth from the book of Philippians. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We just heard about that in our sermon um, this evening. But the idea is that God is working in us. Uh, as we heard tonight, and as the scriptures tell us, this is God's prevenient grace that is preparing the way. Um, and as God works in us, we also work out our own salvation in response to him. So that brings us to book three, which we're in now. 
and the background to that, poor Lewis, uh, back February 18th, 1942, only three days after he finished what he thought was his last talk, the BBC came back to him and said, we want to thank you so much because this was so amazing. We don't want to gild the lily. They were so great. We owe you a debt of gratitude and we want you to know we're grateful. And so to show that gratitude, we want you to do more talks. Um, give up your sleep, take the train that makes you go through fire and get back home to Oxford at two in the morning when you have class to teach the next day. Thank you so much, we're so grateful. Uh, but Lewis does it. And at the end of June, he sent a list of topics for a new series on what he called Christian behavior. And they loved it and they went right to work in September 20th, 1942, Sunday afternoon, um, this new series began. So we talked about the three parts of morality. Um, and just as an aside, one of the reasons this section is so important now is that we have stopped teaching morality. As a culture in the West, we have stopped teaching morality and have said that it really is up to the individual, that there's no such thing as right or wrong. But uh, as one of the old prayers from Thomas Cranmer in the 1500s says, oh Lord, teach us to love what you command. Our hearts need to be trained. And that is part of the purpose of morality, to learn to love what is good and true and beautiful. And morality, the sense of morality that's grounded in the word of God is so very important not only for our culture, but for us as Christians to take a good look in the mirror and think about what are we doing to train ourselves and those in our circles to love morality. So Lewis starts off with the story about the schoolboy who's asked, what do you think God is like? And the schoolboy says, God is that sort of person who's always snooping around to see if anyone's enjoying himself and then trying to stop it. Well, that's exactly what our culture thinks God is all about. And that's why in Screwtape, there's that beautiful admission um, from Screwtape writing to Wormwood saying that God is the one who is the author of all pleasures. And he even says, at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Blech! He's so upset that God is the one that is the source of all pleasure and joy. And the problem for us is that we have bought into what the culture tells us, that morality is something that interferes and stops you from having a good time. But in fact, moral rules are actually the directions for running the human machine. They stop a breakdown or a strain or a friction in the running of that machine. And it is often um, interfering with our natural inclinations because if we followed our natural inclinations, it would not be good for us. Anybody that lives by Krispy Kreme donuts and sees the hot now sign has a natural inclination where probably your body even salivates just when you see that sign. And if you just went there every single time the hot now sign was on and ate a dozen donuts, that might be fun for a little while, but it wouldn't end well. Um, morality teaches us that that's not really a good plan. So we are being taught to do what the right thing is, even though we don't always like that, but eventually we begin to learn that there is truth behind the morality and it makes for a better and more beautiful life. So Lewis then goes to talk about three ways of going wrong. And this is so important in our culture right now. He says the first way of going wrong has to do with human individuals that collide with each other or do one another harm in some way. The second level is the one where something goes wrong inside the individual. And this is a radical concept today where people say, well, nothing is wrong. Anything any individual wants, um, if it's not hurting anyone else, it's no one else's business. That is not the biblical view. The biblical view is that we're made in God's image and we're made to love God and to behave in certain ways that lead to life. And then the third thing is the whole idea of what is the destination and purpose of life. 
And Lewis uses this great analogy of a fleet of ships sailing in formation and how beautiful that is when they're all in formation. But when they're sailing in formation, they can't collide with each other. They've got to be very careful to keep their speed going, to keep their um, direction true. And they also, each ship has to be in good operating order. If one of the ships has a rudder that's broken, they are not going to be able to stay in formation and they will have a collision. So Lewis sums this up as fair play and harmony between individuals, tidying up or harmonizing the things inside each individual, and then the general purpose of human life as a whole, what man is made for. And he says that the whole problem that we have in our culture, uh, which he was very prescient in envisioning this back in the 1940s, is he says all that thinking about making society better, about improving things, building a better world, all of that, he says will be mere moonshine unless we realize that nothing but the courage and unselfishness of individuals are going to make any system work properly. It's easy enough to remove the particular kinds of graft and bullying that go on, but as long as men are twisters or bullies, they will find some new way of carrying on the old game under the new system. You cannot make men good by law, and without good men, you cannot have a good society. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't try to make laws that will help things along the way, but the key to it is individuals and individual hearts, and we see that in Jesus's own priorities, that he did not try to reform the Roman Empire or enact legislation in the province of Judea, he focused on converting individuals and drawing them to the kingdom of God. So Lewis also says that individual morality and beliefs about the universe are directly connected. This is why it's so important to understand the worldview that people are coming from. Because if people are coming from a worldview that says that a thing can't be wrong unless it hurts some other human being, um, and he thinks what he does with his own ship is simply his own business, that is gonna be very different than someone who believes that his ship is owned by someone else. And this is Lewis's way of saying, do you believe that you belong to God, that you were made by God, that God is the one that sustains the very breath in your life, and as a follower of God, he has claims upon you and that every person is made in the image of God. And so if you believe that, um, you want to find out what God's will for you is. But if you believe there is no God and you believe that this life is all there is, then it doesn't really matter. And as Lewis says, this makes a huge difference when you are looking at civilization and government. Because he said, if you believe individuals only live 70 years or so, then a state or a nation or civilization that may last for a thousand years is more important than an individual. But if Christianity is true, then the individual is not only more important, but incomparably more important, for he is everlasting. And the life of a state or a civilization compared with his is only a moment. So a couple of implications from that chapter that we talked about last week. The first is that we as Christians need to re-engage with the truth and beauty and goodness of God's law. We need to understand that even though we are under grace, we cannot earn our way to God. Our salvation is a free gift bought by the costly blood of Jesus Christ that God's law is beautiful. Psalm 19, which we reflected on last week, talks about uh, that the heavens are declaring the glory of God. And it moves on from that very soon after to talk about how the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. More to be desired are God's commandments than honey, than much fine gold. And we need to recover that love of the law of God because it describes the way that the human machine is designed to run. So that is something that we need to become 
uh, better about, that we need to immerse ourselves in that. And the second thing is that we need to be bridge builders. Second Corinthians 5 talks about the ministry of reconciliation that Christ has given to us as the church. And so often it seems that Christians believe their ministry is to judge everybody else and tell them how wrong they are. Well, that is not how you reconcile people. You first have to build bridges. And the idea of that is that you have to build relationship. We live in this culture where there still can be some dialogue among those with different moralities. However, the second level of morality of the self, um, what a person does with their own identity, for example, what pronouns they choose to use, all that kind of stuff, that's increasingly viewed as off limits. You can't talk about that. Um, and you also can't talk about the third level, who made the self. And the most strident voices in our culture today proclaim loudly that identity and personal morality are constructs and are solely the purview of the individual. You are your own creator and you are responsible to no one except yourself. Your highest good is to create and speak your truth. Well, you may think, how in the world do you begin to have a dialogue with someone that's so completely on a different page from you? And the answer to that is found in what Jesus says, you shall love your neighbor uh, and that you shall love your enemy as well. Jesus puts it this way, you've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. People are desperate to be listened to in our culture. And the more that we listen to them, and share our own brokenness and vulnerability and the truth and the joy and the beauty that we have found in Christ, people will be interested in hearing. So that brings us to tonight's chapter, which is on the cardinal virtues. And this is great stuff. Um, unfortunately for most of us tonight, I suspect this may be brand new material. And that just shows you how our culture has shifted if you had lived at any time in human history um, from uh, the time of the Greeks uh, up through probably the 1930s or so, you would have heard about these virtues, uh, but they have been shoved to the background because of our insistence on being able to do our own thing. And the background to this particular chapter is interesting because it was not actually in the broadcast talks, at least not all of it. So when Lewis was doing the broadcast talks, um, his material for this section, uh, book three, had to fit into a 10-minute slot. And he really struggled to make everything fit in into 10 minutes. It's quite remarkable what he did manage to pack in. But when he had the opportunity to publish the material, he decided to add this part about the virtues back in. Lewis believed that the inculcation and practicing of virtue was very, very important in the Christian life. The year 1942 for Lewis was one of unique challenges because it was the year that he became really famous. We tend to think Lewis was always famous, but he wasn't. He was just a professor um, and he was somewhat known in certain circles, but in 1942, he became a celebrity, something that he was horrified by. He did not want to be a celebrity, but what happened is he was already on the road because of these broadcast talks, and then the Screwtape Letters was published in February 1942, and against all odds, it became wildly popular. They could not keep it in print. It went through and sold out eight printings between February and December of 1942. And every time they printed it, they printed enough that they thought it would be enough for 12 to 18 months. And then it took off on the other side of the Atlantic as well. And then just as that was selling out, the broadcast talks, book one and book two that we just finished, 
were published by the BBC and that happened in July and they started selling like hotcakes as well. Well, meanwhile, Lewis was still doing the talks that we're talking about tonight and he had become so well known that he started receiving literally thousands of letters. Uh, and the remarkable thing about that is that Lewis answered every letter that he ever got right up through the last week of his life. It was really astounding, tens of thousands of letters. And just as an aside, one of the best things that I've read that I put off reading far too late um, is Lewis's collected letters. Um, it's not all his letters, obviously, but it's a pretty fair sampling. And they are absolutely brilliant and full of deep spiritual insight. And the great thing about them is most of his letters are short. So even though it's daunting when you get the book because it's about this thick, um, you can read one letter at a time. Most of them are a page or two. And I would really commend that to you if you haven't read them. So when Lewis is talking about the cardinal virtues, that language links us right back to Thomas Aquinas. Remember Thomas Aquinas, who wrote that hymn that we listened to earlier tonight. Thomas Aquinas uh, is probably the great theologian of virtue. And what he did was to um, research all of what the scripture taught about virtue, and then to class these virtues um, taught all through the Old Testament, the book of Proverbs, the Psalms, and the New Testament into seven virtues. And those seven, four of them are called the cardinal virtues, and the other three are called the theological virtues. Now, cardinal doesn't have anything to do with cardinals in the Catholic Church, nor does it have anything to do with those beautiful red birds or sports teams in St. Louis or anything else. Cardinal here comes from the Latin, which means the hinge of a door. And the reason that that is such an appropriate word is that these virtues are seen as the hinges that hold the door onto a beautiful, true, and good life, a life shining in the light of Jesus Christ. So the theological virtues, faith, hope, and love, um, which that might sound familiar from the end of 1 Corinthians 13, those are the theological virtues. Um, those are the ones that are held by Christians. Um, the cardinal virtues, you can find echoes of them across all civilizations. And they are a place where it used to be that there was great social agreement about how important these virtues were. And that is why, um, particularly in this country, in the United States, when you read a lot of those old novels and biographies written um, after the Revolutionary War, um, some of those biographies by people like Parson Weems about George Washington or Francis Marion, they are full of emphasis on virtues and holding up these heroes as models of virtue. And of course, the ironic thing is the word virtue has come into our vocabulary big time again in the past 18 months, but in almost an opposite way, this idea of virtue signaling, the idea of being ultra, ultra politically correct, so much so that I'm much more virtuous than you are, which under the classical scheme of virtue, you would never say something like that because humility was part of the equation. But the four cardinal virtues are prudence, temperance, justice, and fortitude. And as I said in the email today, it's really sad that when most of us hear that, the first thing we think is, well, those are kind of old fashioned words. They're kind of out of vogue. It sounds like something your grandmother might talk about. And the sad thing is these words are life-giving. The virtues described by them are life-giving. And Lewis says, we must recover these as Christians. So we're gonna run through um, what these four virtues are all about. So the first one, prudence, um, which can also be translated wisdom, means practical common sense, 
taking the trouble to think out what you're doing and what is likely to come of it. Nowadays, most people hardly think of prudence as one of the virtues. In fact, because Christ said we can only get into his world by being like children, many Christians have the misunderstanding that provided you are good, it does not matter being a fool, but that is a misunderstanding. In the first place, most children show plenty of prudence about doing the things that they're really interested in and think them out quite sensibly. In the second place, as St. Paul points out, Christ never meant that we are to remain children in intelligence. On the contrary, he told us to be not only as harmless as doves, but to also be as wise as serpents. He wants a child's heart, but a grown-up's head. He wants us to be simple, single-minded, affectionate, and teachable, as good children are, but he also wants every bit of intelligence we have to be at alert at its job and in first-class fighting trim. The fact that you're giving money to a charity doesn't mean that you need not to try to find out whether that charity is a fraud or not. The fact that what you are thinking about is God himself, for example, when you are praying, does not mean that you can be content with the same babyish ideas which you had when you were a five-year-old. If you are in your 50s and your prayer life consists solely of now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. That's probably not very healthy. That's actually a good prayer, but if that's all there is to your prayer life, you are missing out on what it means to know God. It is of course quite true that God will not love you any the less or have less time for you if you happen to have been born with a very second-rate brain. He has room for people with very little sense, but he wants everyone to use what sense they have. God is no fonder of intellectual slackers than of any other slackers. If you are thinking of becoming a Christian, I warn you that you are embarking on something which is going to take the whole of you, brains and all. But fortunately, it works the other way round. Anyone who is honestly trying to be a Christian will soon find his intelligence being sharpened. And one of the reasons why it needs no special education to be a Christian is that Christianity is an education in itself. That is why an uneducated believer like Bunyan was able to write a book that has astonished the whole world. And just a little book plug here. If you've never read John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, please do yourself a favor and do that. Get an illustrated version. Uh, it is a great book that is just as relevant today as it was back then. But the remarkable thing about what Lewis is saying here is that it's so true. People who devote all kinds of energy to financial planning and furthering themselves in their careers, um, doing continuing education, all of that, are content to leave their Christian life at the same level that it was when they first came to Christ. And Lewis says that is not what God calls us to, that he calls us to develop wisdom. Um, the book of Proverbs is all about that. Uh, Ecclesiastes is all about that. And the idea of pursuing wisdom uh, and this idea of prudence being that Christ-informed wisdom about how to live your life is so very important. And that brings us to the next one, temperance. And temperance, as Lewis says, is unfortunately one of those words that has changed its meaning. If I asked any of you, um, and y'all are better informed than most people, if you ask most people on the street what temperance is, they wouldn't have any idea. But I would bet if I asked y'all, um, you would say it's the temperance movement, which was about um, banning alcohol and that whole idea in the early 20th century of not allowing alcohol at all, the days of prohibition. So, but Lewis says temperance does not mean teetotalism. And he says when the cardinal virtue was christened temperance, it meant nothing of the sort. 
Temperance referred not specially to drink, but to all pleasures. And it meant not abstaining, but going the right length and no further. He says, it is a mistake to think that Christians ought to all be teetotalers. Mohammedanism, that is Islam, not Christianity, is the teetotal religion. Of course, it may be the duty of a particular Christian or of any Christian at a particular time to abstain from strong drink, either because he's sort of the sort of man who cannot drink at all without drinking too much, or because he wants to give the money to the poor, or because he is with people who are inclined to drunkenness and must not encourage them by drinking himself. But the whole point is that he is abstaining for a good reason from something which he does not condemn and which he likes to see other people enjoying. One of the marks of a certain type of bad man is that he cannot give up a thing himself without wanting everyone else to give it up. This is not the Christian way. An individual Christian may see fit to give up all sorts of things for special reasons, marriage or meat or beer or the cinema. But the moment he starts saying the things are bad in themselves or looking down his nose at other people who do use them, he's taken the wrong turning. And we have really gotten um, in a state of confusion um, about this virtue of temperance. Uh, what you usually find among Christians is that there are some people that think, just using alcohol as an example, you shouldn't drink any alcohol at all, or maybe one glass of wine. And then you have the other group of people that think drinking is just fine. And um, at the extreme, they go out and get wasted every weekend. Uh, you know, the CDC uh, will tell you that generally more than two drinks makes most people drunk. But there are lots and lots of people, lots of people in the church that drink more than two drinks. And this is true about food. It's true about watching TV. It's true about all sorts of things that we don't practice temperance. Um, you know, Benjamin Franklin had lots of great proverbs about this, and he was actually channeling what the scriptures teach. Lewis says, one great piece of mischief has been done by the modern restriction of the word temperance to the question of drink. It helps people to forget that you can be just as intemperate about lots of other things. Ouch. A man who makes his golf or his motorbike the center of his life, or a woman who devotes all her thirst to clothes or bridge or her dog, is being just as intemperate as someone who gets drunk every evening. Of course, it does not show on the outside so easily. Bridge mania or golf mania do not make you fall down in the middle of the road, but God is not deceived by externals. Now, what Lewis is saying here is that these pleasures are good. There's nothing wrong with golf or a motorbike or clothes or bridge or your dog or your boat, or whatever it might be. But if that thing becomes your God, if that's what you think about in all your spare time, and you're always scheming to get more of it, and you are spending your time on that to the exclusion of priorities that God's word teaches you, that means that you need to work on the virtue of temperance. Self-denial is not something that's very popular in our culture. And in the church, we've gotten so confused about this because we've thrown out the baby with the bathwater. We tend to think that practicing virtue means trying to earn our salvation. And nothing could be further from the truth or from what Lewis is trying to say here. It is not trying to earn our salvation. It's trying to be in partnership with the Holy Spirit to lead a life that's pleasing to God that has the fragrance of Christ and the fruit of the spirit so that other people will be drawn to it. The next virtue is justice. And Lewis will have more to say about this in some future chapters. But for now he says, justice means much more than the sort of thing that goes on in law courts. It is the old uh, idea of what everything that we would call fairness these days. It includes honesty, give and take, 
truthfulness, keeping promises, and all that side of life. Justice is something that is commended and commanded in the scriptures. And then the last virtue, and Lewis will have much more to say about this later on in Mere Christianity, is fortitude. This is a word that could also be and uh, translated as grit or perseverance. And fortitude includes both kinds of courage, the kind that faces danger, as well as the kind that sticks it under pain. Guts, as Lewis says, is perhaps the nearest modern English. You will notice, of course, that you cannot practice any of the other virtues very long without bringing this one into play. There's one further point about the virtues that ought to be noticed. There's a difference between doing some particular just or temperate action and being a just or temperate man. Lewis puts it this way in his analogy. Someone who is not a good tennis player may now and then make a good shot. What you mean by a good player is the man whose eye and muscles and nerves have been so trained by making innumerable good shots that they can now be relied on. They have a certain tone or quality which is there even when not playing, just as a mathematician's mind has a certain habit and outlook which is there even when he is not doing mathematics. And this is something if you have ever been um, to a tennis tournament or a golf tournament or anything like that, you can see that the way that the professionals look when they're playing is really different than the way you look when you're playing that sport. There is a beauty, there is a grace to the movement. And the remarkable thing is it doesn't always seem like that they are um, that much more incredibly muscular or anything like that, um, but that they just have this form that is so beautiful to watch. And that's what Lewis is talking about here, that fortitude um, has to do with this idea of being able to put the virtue into practice consistently in such a way that you persevere and that you are transformed by it. That is, you practice day after day after day after day, your heart and your mind are more and more formed in this virtue. He says, in the same way, a man who perseveres in doing just actions gets in the end a certain quality of character. Now it is that quality rather than the particular actions which we mean when we say virtue. This distinction is important for the following reason. If we thought only of the particular action, we might encourage three wrong ideas. So the first wrong idea, we might think that provided you did the right thing, it did not matter how or why you did it whether you did it willingly or unwillingly, sulkily or cheerfully, through fear of public opinion or for its own sake. But the truth is that right actions done for the wrong reason do not help to build the internal quality of character. Now, any of you who have been around small children who have parents who are trying to teach them right from wrong have no doubt been around the parent who says, tell your brother you're sorry. And what you usually get in response to that is, sorry, you don't get, I'm so sorry. Will you please forgive me? I was wrong to do that. I understand why that was offensive to you. I will try to do better next time. Please forgive me. Well. Those two things are very different. Those are two very different responses. They both are perhaps the right thing to do. Saying sorry is certainly the right thing to do, but the attitude of the heart is what matters. And this is what Lewis is getting at, that doing the right thing without having the right attitude behind it can't really constitute virtuous character. He says this quality character is what really matters. If the bad tennis player uh, 
hits very hard, but not because he sees a hard stroke is required, but because he has lost his temper, that stroke might possibly by luck help him to win that particular game, but it will not be helping him to become a reliable player. So the second thing that can go wrong is we might think that God wanted simply obedience to a set of rules, whereas he really wants people of a particular sort. And this reminds me of one of the parts of our Anglican liturgy that I love so much, uh, where we have in the prayer book a quotation from Jesus that's part of the liturgy, where he says in the sum, what we call the summary of the law in the prayer book, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And what, what Jesus is saying there is that it's not just obedience to a set of rules, that the rules are all about helping us to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And he says the third mistake that we might make is we might think that the virtues were necessary only for this present life, that in the other world, that is in heaven, you could stop being just because there's nothing to quarrel about and stop being brave because there is no danger. Now, it's quite true that there will probably be no occasion for just or courageous acts in the next world, but there will be every occasion for being the sort of people that we can become only as the result of doing such acts here. And this is very much in line with what Jesus says uh, in Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, beware of practicing your piety before men. And then he says that you should do your good works so that your father in heaven who sees your good works will reward you. And there's a lot of what some of us find to be kind of embarrassing language in the New Testament about rewards. But it's the idea that the more that you are trying to follow Christ in this life, the more that you are submitted to the Holy Spirit, in some way that translates into rewards in heaven. And we don't know what that is, what that looks like, but we do know that it's something to be desired. And Lewis concludes by saying the point is not that God will refuse you admission to his eternal world if you have not developed certain qualities of character. The point is that if people have not got at least the beginnings of those qualities inside them, then no possible external conditions could make a heaven for them. That is, they cannot make them happy with the deep, strong, unshakable kind of happiness God intends for us. God will transform us by putting that Christ life into us. And when we come into his kingdom, there will be no more sighing or sorrow or tears, but all of those, that foundation of the Christ life that has been at work in us, that fruit of the spirit taking root in our lives will make a difference in the next world. So there are several implications from this. One of these comes from later on in the book in chapter 21. And Lewis says this, the main thing we learn from a serious attempt to practice the Christian virtues is that we fail. Can I get an amen to that? When we try to practice the Christian virtues, we fail. If there was any idea that God had set us a sort of exam and that we might get good marks um, by deserving them from how we had acted, that has to be wiped out. It's like that old story that some of y'all have heard me use before. If you imagine that you got the top swimmers from every country in the world who had gotten Olympic gold medals and brought them all to the Hotel del Coronado in San Diego, California, and put them on the beach next to where the Navy SEALs train. And you have all of these rippling muscles and people that have won these gold medals and they are the best that they can be so disciplined. They practice every virtue, if you will, of swimming. They've got beautiful form. Um, they've got great breathing and stamina. And you tell them that they are going to 
jump into the sea when you blow the whistle and the first one that makes it to Hawaii wins, uh, you will know that none of them can do that. It is beyond their capability. And it is beyond our capability to practice the virtues in any way that would begin to even um, earn God's approval at all. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to do what is right, what is good, what is true, what is beautiful. Remember how many times the Apostle Paul says, imitate me. Uh, and the reason is that he's trying to imitate Jesus himself. And Lewis says part of the reason that it's so important that we try to practice the virtues is that people who are not yet Christians are watching. And I love this quotation from Dr. Jerry Root. Um, Jerry Root, if you don't know about him, he's somebody that would be great for you to become familiar with. He's a great C.S. Lewis scholar, uh, but more importantly than that, he is uh, one of the great evangelists of this century. Um, he is, holds the chair of evangelism at Wheaton College in Illinois. And um, he believes that Lewis is one of the great resources the church has today in order to share the gospel. And Jerry Root says this, as you share your faith, notice he doesn't say, if you decide to share your faith, he says, as you share your faith, because all of us are sharing our faith, whether intentionally or not, we are the salt of the earth, not just when we feel like it or we're intending to, people are looking at us all the time and making judgments. As you share your faith, people are going to want to know, is it real in your life? Is it the real deal? When you start sharing your faith authentically, you'll need to see the things that need to change inside of your life. In this way, sharing the gospel can refine our own character. Dallas Willard, who's another great person to become familiar with if you're not, once observed that grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. That is something we really need to get a hold of. Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. This is so important. It's not opposed to effort, but it is opposed to earning. We should be seeking to grow in Christ. We should not be inert in our Christian lives. After presenting the gospel in mere Christianity, Lewis directs his reader's attention to spiritual formation, to the development of character. So I would suggest to you all that this is an area that we need to all look in the mirror and think seriously about. Christian character is something that is vitally important. Integrity and virtue are things that are vitally important. And we need to come to love those things because God loves those things and he talks about them in his word. And if your heart is cold toward this, I would suggest that you might make it part of your prayer life to ask that God would give you a heart for developing these virtues, for seeking to be pleasing to him. Um, we talked a little bit, I think I mentioned last week, um, Chuck Colson's book, Loving God, which I know some of you are studying and it relates a little bit to this and I would commend that to you. Well, we are out of time. So let's conclude by saying together this great passage from the end of the book. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. And you will submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for the witness of this book. Lord, we thank you for the beauty of your word and of your law. We thank you for the beauty of the virtues 
uh, that come as we seek to follow Christ and the Holy Spirit brings in us the fruit of the Spirit. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be people whose lives model and reflect these virtues, that people would be drawn to the light that is within us because of the fact that you dwell there in our hearts. We thank you for this time, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.